Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery. Today I'm excited to have Alexei Pikowski, who's the founder of Alpha Green that provides CBD products for health and wellness in the UK. He started his career in M&A at Nemora, where he worked on multi-billion all transactions and chemicals, natural resources and power, and was earlier principal at Dellin Ventures. Uh, Alexa has a master's in energy finance from Imperial College, London. A big thank you to Joseph Corner for the introduction. Uh, welcome to the show, Alexa. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, yeah uh, you know, you, you have an interesting career. You you started off in, in the venture capital world and got into the world of startups. How did you get your, uh, your, your start and why did you want to build Alpha Green? Sure. Um, so I started trading equities when I was 16 years old, which meant that I started looking at businesses very early on. Um, the route into M&A was um, because I wanted to learn more about the fundamentals of a business and how to value a business properly. And then when I was in m and I realized, okay, uh, the better life is on the buy side. So I was trying really hard to get uh, to a place where I start investing in companies. And so I uh, moved um, into a family office where I ran venture capital, investing in seed series A tech companies in the UK and also VC funds. Um, And then after two and a half years there, I received an offer um, from a 3 billion private equity fund and joined them where I also managed to sit on the board of a very large business in Germany, uh, sold that one. And that's where I got the idea to um, build something on my own because I guess when I was also in VC uh, working for the family office, I was looking at a lot of different decks, meeting a lot of different entrepreneurs, but I never had the conviction to go out and, and do something on my own. Um, but then working in private equity, I first of all saw how uh, how to run a business uh, because in private equity, you're very, very hands-on. But also uh, during the time at private equity, the cannabis market in North America um, grew really, really fast. And I realized, okay, nobody's doing anything in the cannabis space in the UK and Europe. Uh, maybe there is something for me to to do and i then traveled canada and california met more than 50 companies and thought okay actually if we build a marketplace we can leverage the fragmentation in the market um, and build something really powerful in the uk and europe um, before let's say the americans come over and that's how we started Um, so we started really more with a timing, a macro vision. Um, The marketplace as a model came because I had a good friend of mine who was a CTO in another marketplace. And I basically told him, look, why don't we build something in the cannabis space? And his skill set was in the marketplace building. So it was very natural for us to say, okay, yeah, let's do a marketplace initially and then see how it goes. And we kind of evolve into other areas and so that's how we initially started. You know, it's it's interesting that you you looked at uh, the CBD market, uh, but but do you think, uh, you know, uh, 
do you think cbd will become more mainstream or is it you know will be more susceptible to societal norms where you know it can't really uh, be more uh, mainstream yeah that's a good question i guess looking at um north america again um it started with initially cbd and then medical cannabis and then recreational so i would say um i expect the same to happen in the uk and europe um cbd is becoming more mainstream if you go on to the main street um you know harrods holland and barrett's tesco they all sell cbd by now uh quality is a very different question but um it is fairly mainstream there is definitely not enough education though so people don't actually know what to use it for how to dose it um and so that's where we really come into play um and we we did actually a, a study with 5000 participants and we had 11% uh, of the uk population i mean obviously that was you know 5k and then we kind of took a percentage but, but, but it was an equivalent of 11% of the uk population have heard about cbd which is a fairly big number if you think about it yeah no no absolutely and uh, you know uh, you've, you've also uh, building a marketplace which is uh, do you think it's more like you know thrasio for uh, the cbd marketplace where you focusing only on you know cbd products so um i guess the evolution of alpha green uh, was first the marketplace we then build an agency providing growth services so seo performance marketing email marketing web development to brands on our marketplace we then after raising um in total 3.5 million pre-seed money uh went into incubation of brands and we now launched our sleep care brand called yons it's a brand with uh, ashwagandha valerian root 5htp and a morning pill with gorana and mushrooms um and we're now working on an insect protein brand as well called patcan um but ultimately that was uh the next chapter or is the next chapter and then most recently we uh received a few inbounds from very exciting health and wellness brands and we realized given there is so much that funding available that funding out there and the businesses such as thrasio are aggregating a lot of different businesses and ramping up revenue that way rather than organically we uh understood that actually that's something we we could also do um but i would say the big difference is that we are very very specialized in the health and wellness space so we wouldn't call ourselves an aggregator we would call ourselves more a strategic buyer if we acquire um brands all right and uh, you know i want to uh, follow up on uh, on the strategy you know uh, what what are the sort of margins and you know how are these uh, direct consumer brands uh, typically valued and, and you know and how do, how do you how do you look at which companies to acquire for your portfolio sure um so direct to consumer brands are valued uh if they're fast growing they're still valued at uh, sales multiples although the better metric to look at is contribution margin 2 which means it's sales minus cost of goods sold 
minus other variable costs, such as payment processing, fulfillment, and discounts. Um, and then you have, so to say, contribution margin three, which is also minus uh, acquisition costs of a customer, right? So your PPC, et cetera. But usually you look at a contribution margin too. And I think, for example, in CBD, um, you're looking at around, you know, 60 to 70% contribution margin too, depends on the format as well. Is it an oil, a capsule, a patch, um, a drink? So that there is a difference, but it's a very, very high margin, um, uh, let's say category. Same applies for beauty and, and cosmetics. Um, if you look at supplements such as protein powder, because it's so commoditized, uh, the margins are much, much smaller. So you're looking at contribution margins probably around 50%. And then um, you usually have uh, acquisition costs, which are fairly high because, again, it's a very competitive space. So you end up with, in a lot of times, you end up with um, just kind of single digit percentage profit margins on a unit basis, um, unless you have a recurring model where people, where, where customers keep returning, which means you don't have that acquisition cost element anymore. And you can kind of like, of course, increase your margin, therefore, quite a lot. And therefore, your long term customer value is actually more than your customer cost of acquisitions. Um, but yeah, ultimately, if it's a fast growing brand, people still value it at, at revenue multiple. And then, and that's, that's of course, if you don't have, if you're like a completely independent brand, of course, talking about Thrasio um, and looking at how aggregators value brands, uh, because a lot of them only look at Amazon brands um, and Amazon brands are usually run by one person or maximum two. Um, they actually look at a metric called SDE, seller discretionary earnings. And that's a multiple, which is net profit, plus the founder's salary, because you basically argue that, okay, after buying that brand, you get rid of the founder, for example, therefore you can add back his salary or hers, and uh, that's the multiple. And then uh, I guess a year ago, the multiples there were two to three times SDE because of that hype in the aggregation landscape. Uh, we're looking at four to five X SDE multiples now, which, which now represent around 1x sales. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions, and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Oh, the, oh no! This is this is pretty insightful. And uh, you know what? Uh, what do uh, what does Alpha Green do to the products and uh, and the companies that acquired? Does the do the operators stay with the with the uh, team or or do, do you let let them go? So, um, the brands we're currently in discussion to to acquire, uh, we actually would have the founders stay on um, and work through an earnout structure. Um, now, because we are not acquiring brands um, in the same kind of frequency as somebody like Thrasio, where they're trying to do 20, 30, 40 deals a year, 
we are much more selective and we are more a strategic buyer in our category, health and wellness. And um, most of the time, there is a certain supply chain element, which is quite specific. And there is a big benefit actually of, of keeping the founder because the founder just knows the supply chain really well. The founder knows the competition really well. Um, and because we are really going after the same cause, which is, you know, helping people, improving their sleep, uh, coping with anxiety, reducing their pain. A lot of the time, the founder of the business we're acquiring is, is also interested to continue working for the same cause and, of course, be part of a bigger platform such as Alpha Green. Got it. And, uh, uh, you know, especially uh, for trial-to-consumer founders who, who are looking to, you know, scale up their businesses uh, either on Amazon or on, on their own Shopify stores, you know, how important is, uh, you know, uh, the building of trust and brand building uh, so that they don't rely only on PPC ads or, you know, uh, or on, you know, paid ads. Uh, what's, what advice would you give to them to build a brand presence? Um, well, a brand can be built in multiple ways. Uh, we build our brand purely on organic search, which meant that we had to publish a lot of content. So we publish on average 200 plus thousand words a month. Um, this oh. is because we also have more than 10 full-time content writers uh, writing day and night. And, and that's more like a CapEx, right? It's a compounding asset, okay. which with time is more valuable because you keep ranking well in Google and you keep, of course, publishing even more and you keep ranking even better and so on and so forth. Um, with PPC, you can, of course, also build um, a brand. Um, it's more difficult in the sense that if somebody knows you have a niche and it's working, people will start bidding on it straight away. Um, and therefore, your CPC will go up and um, you might not be profitable anymore. And the other element is PPC works as long as you have money. If you don't have money, you won't have any traffic. Uh, with SEO and organic search, um, you, you will continue to have that. Now, um, looking at a lot of the newer brands in certain categories, um, such as, again, beauty, for example, uh, influencers are very, very strong uh, growth channel there as well. Again, with influencers, you can definitely build up a proper organic brand presence as well, but it does cost a lot of money initially. Um and then finally, um, you also have channels such as affiliate marketing, where you work with other affiliate platforms and publishers um, to, to drive traffic um, to your site a lot through discounting. So again, this is probably not for the kind of luxury brands, but more for the slightly, uh, well, affordable brands, so to say. Um, so yeah, there are lots of different ways. Uh, but yeah, building brand is definitely very, very important. And, uh, you know, uh, sp uh, again, uh, you know, following up on Amazon, because there's a lot of tired consumer brands who, who have uh, a good presence on Amazon. Uh, how do you compete with, uh, you know, Amazon Basics and uh, and some of the, uh, you know, uh, Chinese competitors who could always come and take your listing away? 
uh, basically hijack your listing. So, you know, any, any, uh, any suggestions on how to compete with a, a big brand like Amazon basics? Sure. So, um, well, similar to Amazon, we will also build a marketplace and we, of course, also see a lot of data, which allows us to launch brands in interesting categories, similar to Amazon launching private label if they see a really interesting category. The problem with Amazon, and we've interviewed actually a lot of different Amazon uh, executives and product category managers for roles at Alpha Green, and we're continuing to interview um, but all of them are basically saying Amazon doesn't know how to build a brand apart from, of course, Amazon itself. Um, and so what you have is that you don't really have too many Amazon basics um, ranking or selling as well as some of the other category leaders, which, for example, Frasio and the other guys are, are also acquiring. Um, so building a brand on Amazon, it's not easy because you have to play a catch-up game with reviews and marketing, but it's still possible if you are in a category where there is a lot of search volume and um, you can figure out the supply chain. I think the point on Chinese, now the supply chain is a lot of the time Chinese, even though uh, some of the brands might be European. Um, and it doesn't mean that it's it's bad or it's good. It's just in some uh, categories such as electronics or uh, a lot of the bedding stuff like pillows and uh, weighted blankets, etc. It's literally 90% Chinese suppliers. Um, doesn't mean it's bad quality. There are a lot of high quality Chinese suppliers. Um, but it's as difficult for a Chinese player to come in and rank really well on Amazon as for a new player based in the UK, Germany. Got it. And, uh, you know, you, you talked about uh, Chinese manufacturers and, uh, you know, uh, do you think some of the products will cease to exist in, in case there's a, you know, trade war which escalates between US and China and, you know, across the world? Uh, do you think uh, relying on Chinese manufacturing for a long time uh, has uh, has not been beneficial? Or do you think it's, it really doesn't matter, you know, going forward. Well, we, 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 that's where we go back to the brand value, right? So if you have a brand and you have a loyal customer following, uh, then you can just choose your supplier. And to be honest, suppliers are very, very similar. A supplier in Germany for pillows or, again, sleep masks or whatever is, is probably very, very similar to supply in China, except that the Chinese one is, is probably cheaper, uh, including the shipment. Um, but if there is a trade war or any other barriers, um, of course, you can change your supply chain. It will definitely cause some interruption. So you might want to run a dual supply chain setup before you kind of like switch to another one completely. Um, but yeah, I think when it comes to uh, ingestibles, which we really know well as a category and also topicals, uh, we can actually make the same product with three different manufacturers. So we don't actually have that much supply chain risk for our own brands. Um, but with devices, um, we again, we are talking to some brands and there are always two or three other suppliers to not have that risk. 
Color and uh, you know, uh, especially with companies like Amazon and Shopify, which is which has given uh, uh, you know, uh, which has been a great help to third party uh, sellers. You know, what what has uh, offline retail companies like Walmart and Tesco uh, uh, are doing to combat Amazon? Uh, do you think you know going forward it's going to be Amazon, uh, which is going to be the market leader, or do you think? Even for retail companies uh, like the Tesco's and the Walmart's, uh, can compete with Amazon going forward. Yeah, Amazon is is a, is a is a is a big business, right? And everybody's trying to compete with Amazon now uh, because they became so powerful, and that's not only because they are let's say quite smart and and know what you know what to do and how to scale, uh, but it's also because a lot of other players such as Walmart didn't move fast enough initially. Um, as you know, uh, Walmart then acquired uh, Flipkart, uh, right? And of course, they also have the online presence themselves, which is pretty good as well now. So you can actually argue that in the US, Walmart is gaining as much market share uh, from other offline players as Amazon is. Um, and in fact, I've seen numbers where actually Walmart performing actually better than Amazon recently. Uh, eBay is making a comeback as well. And then don't forget that you have certain categories, right? So like the same way Alpha Green IO is now Europe's leading marketplace for CBD and health alternative healthcare products. And we are outranking Amazon. We are outranking Holland and Barrett's in some instances. The same way you have different marketplaces and different offline stores with an online presence in certain categories, such as uh, pets, for example, with Chewy, uh, or uh, you have um, some beauty uh, offline source and online source outranking Amazon. So I would say the future uh, is, of course, more competition, but the future is also much more curation and specialization by category. And, uh, and do you think uh, you also would want to have an offline presence going forward just to uh, just to have a presence in Europe and UK and people would want to touch and feel those products? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. And we saw Amazon recently opening up the first offline store in the UK. Right. Um, and we also know that, um, for example, uh, there is there is a deal in in, in Poland. Allegro is actually acquiring um, um, an, an offline setup as well. Um, in the alternative healthcare space and kind of the space where we work, which is around sleep, pain, and anxiety, um, there is definitely an advantage if you have a physical store because people want to try a new product for sure. Um, that can be achieved also through pop-ups and different installations, which are temporary and wouldn't really uh, make you asset heavy. So I would not go as far as to say, okay, we're looking to do something in the physical space, but we could probably do some pop-ups down the line. Yeah. Got it. And um, this is for, you know, direct to consumer brands. Uh, you know, what, what do you think are some of the reasons that they want to sell their, their business? Uh, is it more like making profits and cashing out and looking at different opportunities? Um, a lot of them usually reach 
their limit. Um, so for example, on Amazon, a lot of them know that if they want to grow, they need to hire more people. They can't just work alone anymore. And that's when they think, okay, well, if there is a Thrasio coming, who is prepared to pay five times, you know, SDE, uh, why not? And I just start another business and also buy a yacht on the side, right? So um, I think a lot of the motivation is driven by realizing they've reached the limit and also realizing that right now it's a really hot time to sell a business and it's a really good time for them to cash out. Um, when you think about direct to consumer outside Amazon, um, a lot of the time people sell because maybe they want to retire or they also see that competition is increasing and their growth strategy is not working unless they would raise much more money. Some people don't know how to raise money. So they are saying, okay, let me exit it. And sometimes it's just uh, also um, owned by already another entity. And then the entity is just saying, okay, yeah, we can get a good deal here. Why not sell it to somebody, you know, such as the Hut Group or uh, another consumer group? I have an interesting stat for you, to you know that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. Got it. And uh, uh, you know what? Uh, uh, could be the other reasons for 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 uh, D2C brands to get out of uh, Amazon. Uh, Amazon can provide a great leverage to to sell their products. But uh, do you advise uh, D2C brands to get out of Amazon, or or do you think it's uh, it, it's fairly uh, you know okay to have the presence only on Amazon per se? Depends on your resources. In an ideal world, Amazon would be one of your sales channels, similar to offline being another channel, direct-to-consumer being another channel, a bunch of other marketplaces being another channel, affiliate network being another channel, right? And maybe even social commerce being also a channel. Um, the reality is, though, um, when you're launching a brand, you're initially fairly limited with your resources. And you have to decide what growth channel to go for. Um, a lot of the entrepreneurs who are on Amazon uh, went to Amazon because you almost can argue it's the lowest entry barrier to actually get your revenue uh, because you benefit from the traffic on Amazon already. If you have a direct-to-consumer brand, which is based on a Shopify, or WooCommerce, or Magento, you still need to get that traffic up by ranking in Google versus an Amazon. If you're lucky with a category, uh, you might have sales pretty fast without spending that much money just because you're in a really, really niche a category and there is demand for it. So um, I would say a lot of the established brands on Amazon have also offline and online presence outside Amazon. And a lot of the value add, you can argue by the likes of us, Alpha Green or Thrasio or Perch, is by buying an Amazon-only brand and then scaling 
that brand outside Amazon. And that's why we developed our own in-house growth agency called New Optima to actually scale brands outside Amazon as well, but also help brands who are not on Amazon yet to go on Amazon and scale on Amazon. Got it. And, uh, you know, you, you started Astrocream before COVID. Do you think the pricing and valuation of direct-to-consumer brands have, have changed uh, post-COVID? Um, so I guess the valuations pre-COVID were already quite punchy and we've been seeing a bull market for the last 10 years. Right. Uh, COVID initially had a damper on the valuations uh, because everybody panicked, but the reaction by central banks and pumping a lot of money into the system resulted in just a lot of money out there now, uh, which goes into pension funds, from pension funds into VC funds, from VC funds into private companies. And so you have that spiral where, yes, valuations continue to actually grow. And it just happens that direct-to-consumer brands and e-commerce platforms um, are a big beneficiary of the pandemic because the online penetration and the habits of going online to buy uh, change and kind of, kind of like accelerated exponentially um, and created a bigger market for all these brands to go after. Got it. And, um, you know, let's say you, you've been part of OnDeck scale uh, uh, program, you know, um, before the before the podcast, we, I, I talked about, you know, how I was part of the podcast fellowship. Do you think such uh, communities like OnDeck and Y Combinator and all can can replace uh, universities and you know uh, and the uh, and the com- and the and the resources available to f- for students, or do you think it's it's something which uh, which is ancillary to your you know education? Yeah, so on deck, I love on deck. I'm part of the scale cohort there, which is for founders who have either at least one million ARR or raised at least three million. Um, the concept of on deck is, as you rightly say, it's a bit of a hybrid between Stanford and Y Combinator without them taking any equity, but providing that lifelong uh, education um, and the community. So I would say. I really like the model. Um, the community element is great. The continuous learning element, um, it's good. I think uh, it's something they're probably going to improve on even more. Um, can it replace university? Look, that's a big question, right? I think university is still good and important because it's for people uh, to really learn how to learn. Um, And I would almost argue that not knowing how to learn, you wouldn't really get the same value out of on deck. And so I I still think there will be always um, a need for university and, and higher education um, but maybe in the future, it will not be three or four years, but more like one or two years. And then you have the index of the world providing that continuous education element going forward. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a great opinion. Uh, it's more like a hybrid uh, of uh, education and community. And I think 
universities are, are really important. Just like, going forward, you know, it needs to keep evolving, uh, just like you know uh, how the how the corporate world has. Uh, you know, Alex, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? So my favorite business book is Fast Scaling by Patrick Felsner, which is a book. Uh, not many people actually read, I think, but it's a really, really interesting uh, book, which is slightly uh, different to the hyperscaling book, which is by Reid Hoffman. And I guess the three key takeaways of the fast scaling book is that hyperscaling only works for 0.1% of the most successful companies in the world with unlimited funding, which um well, is a very tiny fraction of companies. And therefore, it's actually much better to read the book Fast Scaling because the main concept there is all about product channel fit, not just about product market fit. And what I mean by that or what the author Patrick Felsen means by that is you can have product fit. So let's say um, you saw that... Um, a nootropic brand with mushrooms sells really well. However, if you don't know how to scale it, so if you don't have a network of influencers or you don't know how to do performance marketing, you might not have the product channel fit. And therefore, to scale something, you actually have to have a product channel fit and know how to scale and where to put the money into scale. And I guess the final point there is... Um, you want to initially um, get all your points right before you raise a lot of money to start scaling rather than, as in the case right now a lot, um, raise a lot of money, burn it, and then kind of figure out how to raise more money to burn it again. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I, I haven't read Fast Killing, but uh, I'm going to, uh, you know, read it after this podcast or show. Uh, but uh, do you have any favorite online tools? For example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? So my favorite online tool is Telegram, which is a bit of a hybrid between Slack and WhatsApp um, with a lot of fun features. Um, we use Telegram as our business tool. Um, we have the same kind of channel function, hashtag functions, uh, and really, really cool emojis as well. Got it. And, uh, you know, if you could go back in time when you, when you started off screen, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? So, yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I think we were quite fortunate with a very, very experienced team to execute quite well. And, uh, of course, we did some mistakes, but um, we grew quite well and still growing really fast. Um, I would say that one thing which I would have done differently is probably uh, experimenting with even more growth marketing channels from day one, rather than uh, being very conservative with the cash deployment and putting a lot into just content. Uh, because while content and SEO works, uh, there are actually many other growth channels which also work, and, but one needs to really explore them and it also takes time. And therefore, I would have preferred for us to have started earlier uh, than kind of a year into the business. 
No, absolutely. That's a, that's a great insight. And um, like I said, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about uh, Alpha Green? Um, well, people can add me on LinkedIn um, um, or they can, yeah, drop me a, a message on LinkedIn and uh, yeah, feel free to ask me any questions and uh, yeah, happy to help. Got it. We'll put the, the LinkedIn uh, uh, ID on the show notes. Alex, thank you so much for taking your time speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Thank you. And thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.